I've often said there's some advantages to being a pastor. For instance, if you're in a wedding, you, you're, you've got the front row center seat, and you can just see all the funny things that happen that nobody else can see, you know? Like I once saw a groom put the ring on the wrong finger of the bride, you know, and during the prayer they're down there trying to get things straightened out. And I've seen grooms look like, what am I doing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And today, because I'm up front, I get to take my mask off, and that's another one. So, um, We're going to be in Luke 14 today. Uh, we're continuing these dinner party dialogues that Jesus spoke when he was invited uh, to someone's house for dinner or was at a dinner. And I want to ease into this text by saying uh, something. Sally accuses me of saying the obvious uh, frequently. And uh, here's the obvious statement to begin this. Uh, some things are more important than others. That's profound, right? Uh, but think about it. Uh, people are more important than things. Being a good parent, I think, is more important than being a good citizen. Uh, we have prima facie obligations, uh, Right now, I have an obligation to be a father, a husband, a grandfather, a citizen of Oregon, a citizen of the United States of America, a child of God. Um, I've got a lot of obligations on me right now, but the one that's preeminent at this point in my life is to preach Jesus, okay? You've got multiple obligations on you, prima facie obligations, And you've got all things considered obligations. And it's a sign of maturity to know the difference between those things. Now, in Matthew 23, um, Jesus points out an instance of that when he says, and this is a text that we looked at a while back, though we did it from Luke's gospel, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he goes on to say, you should have done that, but not neglected the others. And so he said, look, um, there are some things more important than others. You've got these obligations and this obligation. In that case, he says, they should have done both in their turn. Why were the Pharisees like that? Well, it seems to me that they wanted to have a righteousness of their own manufacture. A righteousness that they had made themselves. And I think the reason for that was that they were a proud people that could not humble themselves before God and admit, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. They couldn't do that. So they reduced the law to manageable bite-sized pieces and they took partial obedience as complete obedience and said, we are going to heaven when we die because we've been good enough. They wanted to be in control of themselves and their destiny and their people. And it seems to me that those same two things, pride and wanting to be in control, are the reason that people... Uh, are like them today. 
In today's text, Jesus again accuses the Pharisees of neglecting one of the weightier matters of the law and giving too much attention to a lesser issue. Said another way, they're more concerned with the minutiae of the law as they see it than with people. So we'll have a look at Luke 14, 1 to 6, but before we do, uh, let me point out that though this is a miracle story, there's very little emphasis on the miracle. There's more emphasis on what Jesus says than on what Jesus does. You will note that, I think, if you look at it reflectively. Um, the passage is obviously about something that happened on a Sabbath day, and in one sense it's about the Sabbath day and how to use the Sabbath day, or we'd say the Lord's day, but that's not the main point either, I don't think. I don't think the rights and wrongs or do's and don'ts of Lord's Day observance is the big issue here. It's something they neglected in their zeal for Lord's Day obedience. Lord, help us to see with your eyes and hear with your ears and feel with a heart that's renewed by your Spirit the things that are before us. And Lord, let us honestly compare them with who we are and where we are and what we are. And Father, I pray that you would conform us more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And please, Lord, use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bible open, look at Luke 14 and verse 1. But before I start there, look back at chapter 13, verse 22. Chapter 13, verse 22. He, that is Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And as he goes along the way, he finds these opportunities to teach Uh, the people about the things of the kingdom of God. 14, chapter 14 at verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, that's the scribes and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him, the man with dropsy, and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away. This is God's word. It won't fade away. It'll abide forever and forever. Some of you may have heard of a man named Greg, Greg Kukul. Uh, he's in Southern California or lives there. So, uh, uh, his ministry's there. His ministry's called Stand to Reason Ministry. It's an apologetics ministry. And he has a, a video series that I have used. I taught a couple of apologetics classes at St. Stephen's Academy when I first moved out here. And he has this video series called Tactics in defending the faith, teaching strategies about how people can 
be evangelistic and, 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 and present the gospel and deal with people as they arise fairly naturally in life, uh, in the warp and whoop of life. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a helpful thing. It's enlightening. I like it. Um, and I, I would commend it to you. Now, in this passage, Jesus is kind of following that advice because there are two questions he uses. Um, and, and questions do a couple of things in a dialogue like this. They, they, um, they dig deeper, they probe, and they set the other people back uh, kind of on their heels, so to speak. Uh, when you're uh, dealing with them. And that's really what Jesus does here. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, suppose somebody, you're in a, at lunch or coffee. Well, we don't do that as much as we did because of COVID, but maybe you're doing this or you're talking to somebody on the phone and they're complaining about some aspect of the craziness that's in the world today and how insecure they feel as a result of all the craziness going on in the world today. Now, what you could say is something like this. Well, you know, friend, knowing Jesus and believing in Jesus and finding your security in Jesus is the only way you'll know security and be overcome your feelings of insecurity um, in, this, in this fallen world. And if you said that, you'd be correct. But you probably wouldn't get a lot of hearing. What you might say to a person who's saying, the world is crazy and I feel really insecure is... You could say something like, do you think security is possible in this world today? And if so, how do you think we could ever be secure in this world today? And then listen. Listen, because when they tell you how they're finding, seeking security, you know what they're going to tell you if they're a non-Christian? They're going to tell you what their idols are. Because everybody's going to go to their God at that point. Well, I could feel secure if I had $10 million in the bank and a, and a, and a, and a 100,000-acre ranch in a remote part of Montana. <laughs> well, yeah. For how long? <laughs> uh, how many years before you pass from this world to the next? And you pray as you ask a question and, and hope they will ask you, well, how do you find security? Ah, there's a straight shot from that question to the gospel. And you plowed the earth with a question. Now, Jesus uses questions in verse 3. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And then he uses a question in verse 5. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And that's it except for the miracle and the setting. Huh. What I want to do today is uh, walk through the passage, uh, making a few comments and uh, making a few applications along the way. And uh, um, I'm not going to use my usual style or or framework for for preaching. I'm just going to kind of walk us through. If I told you how many points I had, you'd you'd just freak out. So I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to kind of walk through it, okay? First, I want to look at this dinner that Jesus attended that's mentioned in the first part of verse 1. Now, if you skip down to verse 12, you'll find that Jesus was invited to this party 
Uh, we're not told that in verse 1 or 2. Uh, but he was invited. Uh, he did not crash the party. The party is in a Pharisee's house. And, and the Pharisee is a ruler of the Pharisees. Um, um, uh, if, uh, if, uh, if I said to you, uh, your arch enemy... What does it mean that someone is your arch enemy? You would say, well, an arch enemy is your chief enemy. And, and this ruler, this word ruler uh, begins with that word arch. It comes from this, this type of word. And so this guy is a mover and shaker, uh, a mover and shaker among the Pharisees. Uh, he was a kind of a head honcho, kind of a Pharisee. And so, Jesus is doing this very common thing, as we've seen. He's in this Pharisee's house, and it's one of the dinner party dialogues. And I'm going to tell you now, and I'll tell you why later, I think this is a setup. I think Jesus has been set up um, in this situation. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Secondly, I want you to look at the, the, the attention Jesus received. Look at the last part of verse 1. They were watching him carefully, or they were watching him continuously, or they were watching him, uh, uh, and, and the word, again, the Greek word is used uh, of a continuous kind of watching to find fault. Uh, the principal at my school, uh, when I was in school, was like that, you know? Uh, he, he seemed to me to always be looking to find fault. I was probably, uh, uh, is some of my problem as well. But anyway, in other words, I caused that, you understand. But they're watching him carefully. And I think Jesus knew that uh, because they want to catch him in something that he might say or do. If you look back at chapter 11 at the very end, the, the chapter that we spent six messages in, at the last two verses of chapter 11, and as he, that is Jesus, went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. That was their goal. And this very same word, watching, is used in Mark 3. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he might heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Luke 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Jesus lived in a fishbowl. And if you're a believer today following hard after Jesus Christ, you do too. People are watching you. In my neighborhood, in the space of six houses, there either are or were three different live-in situations. And they know that I come down here on Sunday mornings to preach to you. They know I was a pastor in Alabama for 30 or 40 years. And we feel watched, too. Why do non-Christians watch? Well, in one sense, it's the same as the Pharisee here. They're seeking to find fault. 
But why do they want to find fault? Why do people want to find fault with Christians so much? Well, let me explain that for a minute. Begin with what I have called the non-Christian gospel. This is no gospel at all, but stay with me on this. I'll call it the non-Christian gospel, the non-Christian way to get to heaven, okay? Here's the non-Christian gospel. If you will be good or keep the law, then you can go to heaven. If you will be good, keep the law, then you can go to heaven. Then, in response to the claim of Christians, and what is the, one of the claims of Christians? Well, I believe I'll go to heaven when I die. Right? Yeah. The non-Christian takes that claim, I will go to heaven with, when I die, as a claim to be good. Well, if you claim you're going to heaven, then you must be claiming to be good. Because the way people go to heaven is to be good. Now, logically, it does not follow. It's called the fallacy of affirming the consequent, for those of you that are into logic. But it's the way people often think. You see, you know, if you'll be good, you can go to heaven. Well, there's another way. If you believe in Jesus, you can go to heaven. So, if you... If, if, you're, if you're affirming this, you don't necessarily mean one or the other. Well, that's why a non-Christian may well be watching you. This is the basis of why non-Christians believe that Christians think they're better than everyone else. Their thinking would go something like this. You claim to be headed to heaven, which means you claim to be a good person. But that's not my claim. And I hope it's not your claim. Our claim is that by way of the good news of Jesus' sinless life and atoning death, by faith I'm an heir of heaven. So non-Christians watch us just as they watch Jesus. They want to see if we're consistent, to see if we are as good as they think we're claiming to be, and then try to crush us when we are what we are which is fallible creatures. Again, Christians do not believe they will attain heaven because they're good. We believe we're not good and can only attain heaven by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, who alone was good. But we're being watched. And we're being condemned often because of a false gospel that's out there. Thirdly, I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 2, the word behold. It's an exclamation. It's a little word that's used 1,065 times in the ESV version of the Bible. 39 times in Luke alone, 39 times in Matthew, 89 times in Isaiah. It's a word that is very, very frequent, and most often we just read over it. Most often, it kind of functions as filler for us, and we just go, we just blast right through it and get on to the next words. What does it mean? It means to look, pay attention. I'm about to say something really, really important. The writer is trying to alert us to something that he doesn't want us to miss. He is even, you might say, raising his voice a bit. I challenge you to this. Begin in Isaiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, 
I left the Lamentations out, but you can add that too. And then go through the Minor Prophets and take, if you're, if, unless you're opposed to this for various reasons, take a little red pencil and underline the word behold every time it appears as you read through those sections of the Bible. You will be amazed. You will be amazed at how many times you see it. Uh, I did that myself, and I, I have uh, more than one Bible, as you might imagine, and I have an unmarked one, and I have the Carter annotated version, you know, <laughs> uh, the one I put notes in and marks in and everything. And, and uh, so I marked it. I did that. I marked it. I was amazed at how frequently that word appears. Don't read over the little words and the connectives, the therefores, the thens, the for. He did this for he was or something. Those are very important words. Fourthly, there's an opportunity here that Jesus saw. There's a man before him that has dropsy. Um, what is dropsy? Well, it's, it's, a, it's something that has to do with fluid retention. We would call it edema. Uh, in, uh, in the, in the, in the um, arms and legs, uh, perhaps mostly then. Um, and um, the, the Greek word, again, has the word hydro uh, at the beginning of it. Uh, it's a water. And, and it, the Greek word could literally mean, I'm not sure about this, cruel water. Um, uh, he's got a water retention issue. Um, and um, he is before Jesus. Why is he before Jesus? Why in this party did this man, um, you know, we'll say he was sitting right in front of him or right across from him or right next to him or something like that, and you say, well, it's because of the providence of God. I understand that. Yes, it was the providence of God. But suppose there were place cards, you know, (laughs) and there's a place card for Jesus and there's a place card for this man. I don't know what his name was. We don't know his name. I think this man and this situation are planted here so that Jesus will be tested as I read those other verses from the other Gospels. Uh, They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. I think this man's a plant. And he's planted here to test Jesus. And, And what was the opportunity Jesus saw here? Well, I think it's twofold. One, it's a chance to show that the scribes and the Pharisees um, uh, have an incorrect interpretation of the Old Testament law uh, about the Sabbath day. Uh, they have an incorrect interpretation about the meaning of the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, they had botched it up with so many minute rules and, and, and many of them, some of them at least, uh, hypocritical. Um, but so Jesus, I think, has a chance to challenge that interpretation, but I think he also sees it as a chance to be merciful. And I think that's the big thing in Jesus' mind. Um, that's the reason I entitled the message When Mercy Was Missing, because I think mercy is the big deal here. I don't think it's about the. I don't think the really big deal is about the Lord's Day. It's it's that's significant, but I don't think that's the really big deal. Jesus sees here a chance to to correct the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, and a chance to be merciful. And so then, in verse three, surprisingly, uh, Jesus it says Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. But but you say, wait a minute, the, the, the lawyers and Pharisees haven't said anything that we know of. Nothing's been said by them, but Jesus knew what was going on. He knew what they were thinking, 
And they were thinking, would Jesus heal this man with dropsy on the Sabbath? Which was against the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And so Jesus threw it back at them with a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They would have said no. Jesus will say yes. If you're the sick man, which answer do you like the best? That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Do you like the compassion and mercy of Jesus or the incorrect interpretation of the law by the scribes and the Pharisees? So Jesus responds to what they're thinking with a question, and that's followed, sixthly, by silence. They're silent. They remained silent. I think they've been silent. They're just watching. Why are they silent? Because Jesus has them over the proverbial barrel. They're in a lose-lose situation. If they say, no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they come across looking pretty bad. If they say, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, what do they do? They contradict their own teaching. Jesus has them over a barrel. Then seventhly, Jesus performed a miracle. It was a miracle. He took him up, he took, Jesus took him, healed him, and sent him away. Very little emphasis because it's not the main point. Indeed, I think healing was not the main point in Jesus' ministry. I think the healings he did were to show that the kingdom is coming and the kingdom will be a place where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more, no more disease, no COVID-19 of any variant in heaven. And his, 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 his healings, his miracles also not only showed what the kingdom would be like and, and that the kingdom was coming in their midst, uh, but it also uh, showed and authenticated his word as, as the word of God. So then verse 5, he asked another question. Which of you having a son or donkey or an ox, a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Now some of the manuscripts, instead of the word son, have the word donkey. And the two words are not uh, too different in their spelling uh, in, the, in, in, the, uh, in the original language here. And, and I think it's at least possible for several reasons I won't go into that the, that the best reading is, uh, it, which of you, if you have a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. Now, their wells were just holes in the ground. You, some of you have seen wells. I've seen wells in, in Mississippi and Alabama uh, where I grew up and spent some time, and they would usually have stone around them and be built up this high or so, and they might have a crank over it with a bucket and that kind of a thing. Um, but theirs didn't have that. Theirs were just kind of holes in the ground, and, and animals could fall into them, um, and, and people could too. Um, and, and their Sabbath practice, not their teaching, but their Sabbath practice was that if their, if their ox fell into a well on the Sabbath day, they would rescue him. It's kind of like a, a child falling into a lake. It's a life-or-death situation. Without rescue, there will be death. So, why did Jesus ask this? Why did he ask it? Well, on the surface, 
it was about an outward well-being of a very serious kind, life or death. More deeply, I think the issue here is freedom from disease and the kingdom of God. But even more deeply, I think the point is about mercy. Would you people show more concern for an ox or donkey than a person? That's what he's asking them. Perhaps this is related to Jesus' statement in other places when he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But his point is to point out their heartlessness and their hypocrisy and to try to get them to change. And he does it with questions, just asking questions. There are places where he gets in their face pretty badly, pretty directly, but not here. And again, their silence. They could not, verse 6, they could not reply to these things. No, no good response was possible. They are unmasked. They are shamed. Their hypocrisy is exposed. Repentance should have been their next step, but it wasn't. Why? Well, their hearts are hard. Their hearts are set against Jesus. They did not want to change. There's a place in the Old Testament, I, I've, I've actually preached this text, and, and it, it talks about set your heart. Set your heart. Well, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because we, in our culture today, act like we're, we're, we're just slaves to our hearts. You know, we've got to follow our hearts, whatever our hearts tell us to do. Um, uh, we're supposed to do that, you know. And, 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 and the Word of God says, set your heart. I mean, how do you do that? Is it like setting a thermostat, you know, on the wall at your house? You go punch in the right numbers or turn the dial and it's there? Well, you know, that's not true. How do you set a heart? How do you overcome a hard heart? What, 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 can, what can help these people? Only the grace of God, the mercy of God. Only the Spirit taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh. But they can be uh, uh, promoting that or trying to further that if they will seek God earnestly, if they will read the Scriptures and ask God, God, show me where I'm wrong, if I'm wrong. They did not want to change. But Jesus is there for them if they will repent and believe. And friend, He is there for you if you will repent and believe. Nobody ever repented and went to Jesus to be saved and he turned them away. It's never happened. It never will happen. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you study the New Testament through, there are at least seven times when Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. Luke 4, the man with an unclean spirit. Luke 6, the man with a withered hand. Luke 13, a woman with a disabling spirit. Mark 1, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. This passage. John 5, the 38-year invalid man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. John 9, the healing of the man born blind. All of these were healings done on the Sabbath day. 
And the Pharisees could never rejoice, but they were angry and judgmental. I ask again, why? And I say again, they were working on the basis of the non-Christian gospel, which is no gospel at all. Keep the law well enough and you can go to heaven. It's also, you could say it this way, it's because they have not experienced the saving mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Because people that have experienced the saving mercy of God in Jesus Christ are merciful people. They're different people. People that have experienced the mercy of God in Jesus Christ weep over sinners more than they condemn them. In the late 1970s, we started a men's prayer breakfast at the church I was pastoring in Madison, Mississippi. And there was a man there in that prayer breakfast who would come and he would start taking names of those who weren't there. And he would get angry. Where is, where is, where is... And I would try to say to him, look, we've got a pretty good percentage of the men in this church at this prayer meeting. Yes, but where is this guy? And where is this guy? And where is this guy? And I reflected on that and I prayed about that. And I said, you know, this meeting is going to end. It will not survive. And it didn't. It lasted a few weeks. And it was, well, if they won't come, I won't come. Well, I hope I'm wrong, but there wasn't a lot of mercy in that. And perhaps that man had not been touched by mercy. People who have been touched by the grace of God are merciful. They're patient with others as God has been patient with them. They are merciful with others because they've experienced the mercy of God. Have you experienced the mercy of God? The mercy of God? The mercy of God. Have you ever cried out to God for mercy? Do you know what mercy is? Some of you know my graduate degree is in in, uh, philosophy, and there's nothing that's so crazy philosophers won't think about it. It's one of their strengths and weaknesses, I suppose. So I came up on a group of graduate students one day, and they're discussing the concept of deserving mercy. Now, I was a fourth-year graduate student by that time. If I'd been a first-year graduate student, I would have said, oh, that sounds really intriguing. Let's talk about that. But by the time you get to be a fourth-year student, you recognize foolishness for foolishness. You know? Deserving mercy. No one deserves mercy. Mercy, by its very definition, is undeserved help and kindness. Undeserved. So the question for you and me is, do I believe the grace I've gotten from God was deserved or undeserved? And the truth of the matter is, it's undeserved. There's nothing in you that commends you to God. You are like a brand plucked from the fire if you know Jesus Christ. And there's nothing you can say to God, you saved me because I came from this family, I'm of this race, I have this education, I have this IQ. That's why you saved me, God. 
There's no answer to that question except the love of God. If you're saved, it was because of the love of God that marked you out and passed by others. So when the ten lepers came, and a leper is someone that has no claim on anybody in that culture, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Blind Bartimaeus, the kind of man who would have things oozing out of his eyes in that culture because of his whatever has caused his blindness. Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. We have no claim on you, but we want mercy from you. Will you reach out to us? And in both of those cases, he did. How can you tell if you've experienced the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? Are you merciful? Well, how merciful should I be, you might say? That's easy. You should be as merciful with others as God has been merciful with you. Day after day, week after week. Month after month, year after year, sin after sin. God has been merciful. That's what the Pharisees and scribes couldn't see. Because they didn't think they were commended to God on the basis of mercy. They thought they were good people. And Jesus was saying to them, you're not good people. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us pray. Lord, our God, um, we pray that we would be merciful people, uh, that we would not major in minors, but that the weightier matters of the law, like mercy and justice and kindness and righteousness, would dominate us. Forgive us, Lord, that all too often we have acted as if there was something in us to commend us to you. Lord, I pray that any in the sound of my voice that are struggling to realize that they are, have nothing to commend them to you but their sin, that you would give them the faith to believe that you will receive them anyway. Indeed, those are the only kind of people you really receive. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.